This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. People getting vaccinated across the country. Cases and deaths falling. Hospitals treating fewer patients. Looks like... We're nearing the end of this, but is the optimism, is that kind of optimism premature? While the virus is slowing down in the U.S., it is picking up again in Europe. Will spring break partiers ruin it here for us? Young kids in school might be able to get closer to each other again. And fear might prevent a lot of people from getting vaccinated. They don't like needles, so what can you do to make things easier? Let's start with improving and declining numbers here in the U.S. Dr. Eric Toner is an internist and emergency medicine physician. He's also a senior scientist at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Doctor, it seems like things are getting better, but the pandemic isn't over, is it? Uh, it's looking good. The, the case counts are coming down. You know, the, the, the light at the end of the tunnel is getting brighter every day, but we're not done yet. And the only way that this can really go bad is if we screw it up, if we decide to stop prematurely wearing masks maintain distance, avoiding crowded indoor spaces. And that's, you know, what it looks like is, is happening in many places. And, you know, I think it's a real threat. And the problem, as we've discussed here, I think even maybe with you before, is that each time we kind of do this, we bring the cases down and then we plateau at a new level and you think it's a good level to be at, but that's just where you can rise from again. So if we've got, you know, X amount of cases today, oh, this is better than it was. Yes, but here is our new point to start going back up if we go back up. Yeah, exactly. The The plateau where we are right now was what we were so concerned about last summer. I mean, we are back to what we used to think were awfully high numbers. So why are we so dumb about all this? Uh, I mean, we are. Uh, we're, you know, we're, we're rushing to, to go to, to gyms and, and restaurants and movie theaters. And we've had a year of being educated by uh, experts such as yourself. Uh I don't get us. Well, um, yeah, I don't, I don't either entirely, but you know, I think people are tired of it. They're frustrated. I, I am, I'm, I'm tired and frustrated. Um, but you know, we just need to hang in there a bit longer. Um, you know, I, I can, I can hear a coach yelling in my ear, you know, hang in there, hang in there. Don't give up. You know, I, that's, that's my message is don't give up or, as, as one person told me the other day, you know, we're, we're on the one yard line. It's not time to stop. Is it the variants that are giving us problems? Is it just mixing? Is it, you know, we got far enough away from how bad things were in the winter that now it feels like you can go over to somebody's house? Is that just a combination? I mean, it's kind of funny when we ask the question, are we in the danger of becoming complacent? Well, yeah, we already got complacent over the summer holidays, and we got complacent again Thanksgiving, and look what happened. Yeah, I think it's a combination of probably some some aspects of the variance and, and the fact that it looks so much better than it did uh, two or three months ago even though the numbers are still high compared to what we, you know, we experienced before, but it's much better than two or three months ago. So it feels, it feels freeing. Uh, let me ask you uh, briefly about uh, this controversy that is developing overseas with the AstraZeneca 
vaccine, yeah. which is not available yet in the U.S., but certainly is available or has been available throughout most of, of Europe. A number of countries today uh, have suspended the use of it. Uh, Scandinavian countries suspended it, I think, a few days ago because of concern that it might be causing blood clots and I think in two cases possibly fatal. I know the company, AstraZeneca, is saying no evidence yet that shows a connection, but is there reason to be concerned? Well, I, th- I think whenever you see uh, some unexpected complications or adverse effects, it, it warrants investigation, and that investigation is ongoing. So I think the, the countries are being cautious. Um, what I hear um, from scientists and, and medical people is that they doubt this is actually related to the, to the vaccine. You know, you have to realize that many millions of people have been vaccinated in Europe, and there are a handful of cases of blood clots. It's not clear that those have anything to do with each other. But time will tell. They'll figure this out. But in the meantime, I don't fault the countries for uh, slowing down or, or pausing the vaccinations. Um, but they they should restart them as soon as it's clear that you know that the, these are not causally related. Dr. Eric Toner, internist, emergency medicine physician, senior scientist, Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. The virus is gaining momentum in Europe, especially Central Europe, where countries are seeing an increase in new infections. They're blaming the variants and heading back into stricter lockdowns. Dr. Martin McKee, professor of European Public Health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. So, doctor, what's going wrong? I think what we're seeing is that countries across Europe were controlling the pandemic pretty well up until just before Christmas. And then we had this particularly the B117 variant that came out of England and started to spread initially to Denmark, the Netherlands and then further afield. And the measures that were effective in controlling that were no longer in controlling the earlier version were no longer effective in controlling the new variant. That's the real challenge. The new variant is more infectious. People are infectious for longer if they are infected. And also we're now seeing that it is more lethal. So what are they doing now to try and be proactive about going after this one? Or what more could they be doing? Would you double mask? You close things that were open? Essentially, we need to go back to basics. This is a virus that spreads in any situation where people come together in large numbers for a prolonged period of time and particularly indoors. So we've got to do things which actually stop that happening or try to interrupt the transmission. And that can be face coverings, as you say. It can be restricting the opportunities for the virus to spread by closing uh, and restricting movement in the facilities where people are coming together. There's no sort of magic about whether it's restaurants or bars or shops or whatever. It's just anywhere that people are coming together in large numbers to mix. And uh, we need to then try to uh, go through those each each of those different situations, try to minimize the opportunities. And where we can't minimize them, uh, you know, then we have people in there for a shorter period of time or whatever. Now, I, I think I'm correct that the current vaccines that are available, Moderna, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, these are all effective against this particular variant. So is the problem in Europe, uh, on the continent, that the vaccination rate is way too slow? <clears throat> the worst, right, they are. 
uh, all of the vaccines do seem to be working against this. The, the only question internationally is the variant that seems to have come out of South Africa, where there are some concerns. But yeah, it, the, the vaccines are working. But as you say, the rollout has been slow in many countries. Now, it's been very good in Israel. It's been good in Malta. Denmark is not doing too badly, but some of the other countries are lagging behind. And of course, the UK has been doing very well. The UK did adopt a strategy of trying to immunize as many people as possible with one dose, even though they would delay the second dose, which many of us think was the right thing to do. It's much better if you've got 100 doses to make sure that all of them have got about 80% protection rather than only half of them have got about 90% protection. Uh, and that's how the UK, I think, has done so well in getting the numbers with one dose up. But no, there's a long way to go. And I think this is a reminder for us all that it's not just about having the vaccine available. Getting a vaccine into a country or into a state or wherever, getting it to the airport is easy. Getting it into people's arms is the more complicated thing. And that's where you need to have the logistics, all of the other systems in place. How much of a warning do you think this translates to for us over here? Because it's always kind of seemed like Europe is a few weeks or, you know, a month ahead of us. Whatever they're doing, we're going to get here just a little bit later. I think the big challenge for every country is not so much getting the vaccination rate up to 60, 70 percent. We can do that relatively easily. We just need to make sure the vaccine is available and distributed. And of course, some countries are having problems with that. The real challenge will come whenever we need to get it up to the much higher levels to get herd immunity. And that and, you know, we shouldn't put to figure out because we can't be precise, but it's off the order of 85, 90 percent. And getting those levels really mean making sure that we have a high level of uptake by everybody. And in particular, people who are living in disadvantaged communities, people of colour. A particular problem for you in the United States is that, in fact, it is and this it may seem very strange for people from outside the uh, the US, the, the poll, the survey data show very clearly that it's actually white Republican voters um, who seem to be most hesitant about this. Uh, yeah. But uh, <laughs> you, you will understand that better than I do, because we certainly don't understand it from here. But that's really important. You need to get everybody vaccinated. And uh, that will be a challenge in some parts of the United States. Uh, we're running out of time. So let me ask you a very brief uh, question here about the AstraZeneca vaccine, which, as you know, in some of the European countries, they've suspended it because of some concern about whether they may be linked to uh, blood clots in some people. I know that that's a vaccine that is widely used in the UK. What's your level of concern, if any? Well, my level of concern is actually pretty low because at the minute, with the evidence we have available at present, and I stress that because the situation could change as we get more evidence, but the evidence we have available at present is that the rates of blood clots are actually no higher than you would expect in a population of this size. You know, five million people in Europe have been vaccinated. The number of cases reported is 30 or 40. We would expect 100 a week in 5 million people uh, in, no, in normal circumstances. However, we just need to keep a, an eye on that and uh, be, be vigilant. Dr. Martin McKee, Professor of uh, European Public Health, the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. The six-foot rule for social distancing might be too much for young kids. New research suggests three feet is enough to limit COVID spread. Schools would likely have an easier time keeping kids only three feet rather than six feet apart. With us, the co-authors of the study, Dr. Westlin Elman Branch, infectious disease specialist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and Harvard Med School. Dr. Alyssa Perkins, associate professor of emergency medicine at Boston University's School of Medicine. So, Dr. Perkins, let's start with you. Tell us what you found. 
So what we found is that in Massachusetts, with all of the other mitigation measures in place, students and staff attending schools have lower rates of COVID-19 than their corresponding communities. And in schools that had only three feet of distance between students, there were not more case, the, the case rate of COVID-19 was not higher than in those districts that required six feet of distance between students. Dr. Elman, why is this important for schools to perhaps know? Well, it's really important because a major contributor to the lack of school opening has been this question of how can we get as many students as possible back into the classroom. And the reality is with existing school infrastructure, it is simply not possible to bring all of the students back to the classroom with six feet of distance between them. So it was really important to figure out whether or not we needed to maintain six feet of distancing or if smaller distances, such as three feet, would be sufficient to keep students and staff safe. Um, because at six feet, we can get about half of the students back into the classroom, whereas at three feet, we can get all or almost all of the students back into the classroom. And since we know classrooms are the best place for students, it's where they learn, it's their normal environment, it keeps them healthy in a lot of different ways, it was critically important to answer this question. So is this more a question and answer of the actual amount of space? that you need, or is this just that the virus, bottom line, just isn't as easily transmitted by young kids? Our study can't directly answer that question. What it can show us, though, is that with multiple other mitigation measures in place, the way there were in Massachusetts, including mandatory masking requirements, hand sanitizing, some minimum ventilation uh, procedures, that schools are able to be a safe environment. Now, you know that, uh, Dr. Uh, Elman, let's direct, direct it to you on, on this one. Uh, you know that there are going to be uh, adults who are going to hear this and go, oh, well, uh, if it's good enough for kids three feet, it's probably good enough for adults, so let's pack more people into places like outdoor dining, things like that. Uh, why does this not necessarily apply to adults? really conducted in schools. Um, we only looked at in schools and the impact of this policy in schools. And schools are a different environment than any other environment. Um, schools, we, schools are controlled. Um, and so in Massachusetts, we did have a near universal masking mandate. And it turns out that kids are pretty good about wearing masks. In fact, in another study um, from students in Wisconsin, they found over 92% compliance with masking. And obviously, in other environments and places like in-person dining, people are not going to be wearing masks. And so our study really addresses this question in schools in a controlled environment and is not necessarily applicable to other environments. And Dr. Perkins, for the adults, I mean, the teacher, if you're unvaccinated, you still try and stay as far enough of a buffer zone as, as you can? I think that's a fair way to put it. We've seen in a number of studies uh, nationwide that most of the infections in school settings are transmissions from one adult to another adult at times where mitigation measures break down. For example, during break time when they're closer together, their masks are off and they're eating. So although our study in particular didn't look at this, I would say that the balance of evidence suggests that adults should certainly do their best to maintain the distance between them.
Uh, to either one of you, does it uh, matter that with children, I presume, when they talk, laugh, cough, sneeze, whatever, it's not with the same force as an adult would? Is that an, another reason why three feet may be suitable as opposed to six? Our study wasn't designed to address that. We really very narrowly looked at this question of three versus six feet, provided there was universal masking. Um, but certainly, I think that's a reasonable theory for what may be contributing to this. And kids also are clearly different. They have a different distribution of the receptors that the virus binds to. So there are lots of reasons to think that kids may be different, but our study didn't address that. Dr. Weston Branch Elliman, infectious disease specialist, the VA Boston Healthcare System. Dr. Alyssa Perkins, vice chair of research, Department of Emergency Medicine at Boston Medical Center. Thanks to you both. Coming up after this short break, spring break partying begins in Florida. But will those parties lead to funerals? Spring break partiers are back in Florida hitting the beaches and clubs. Pictures are coming out of large groups and no masks. Do these large gatherings threaten the progress we've made? Dr. Erwin Redlener, director of the Pandemic Resource and Response Initiative, professor of health policy management, Columbia University Medical Center. So, doctor, your thoughts about seeing the videos of these partiers? I'm kind of astounded that, um, you know, especially college and high school kids who should know better. I know they're impatient. I know we all want to get back to normal. But, you know, this is just too soon, guys. You know, this is, this is creating these artificial, unnecessary hotspots of it's not just people gathering together, but they're, you know, they're really uh, flaunting the, uh, you know, their, their disdain for the rules and are going to, many of them will be taking COVID uh, back home to wherever it is they came from. And I think that's incredibly irresponsible. You know, we just had a few days ago, uh, an unauthorized off-campus frat party that uh, a lot of Duke students went to. They got 180 uh, positive cases, and Duke had to shut down the campus now. So, I, you know, I, it's it's a little, you know, having I have a college-age grandchildren, and you know, I've been through this with my own children, and uh, you know, I, spring break is important. I get that, but it's a social event, and I wish it was a little bit more uh, appropriate restraint given the. Uh, the danger that we're dealing with in the pandemic right now. Well, is it then the, the fault of the the college students? Is it the fault of local officials who have pretty much given it the green light or both? Yeah, all of the above. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know how the message is actually not getting through, but I know people want the business back and local officials have their eye on, uh, you know, local businesses and bringing money into the economy. But we're dealing with life and death, and there's no other way to put it. It's not something that can be avoided. It's something, you know, in terms of that particular uh, decision, you know, so are we protecting the lives and wealth, well-being of people, or are we letting kids, uh, you know, make believe this is uh, somehow, you know, partying like 1999 or whatever. But, um, yeah, whatever it is, it's inappropriate, and a lot of people at fault. But I think the, the students are old enough, theoretically, to understand what the issues are, but also the, the uh, public officials should know better. And I, I think they're making a choice that's going to definitely cost, cost lives at some point in the next few weeks, unfortunately. But was there really a way to head this off? I mean, we could have seen it coming. We knew people were going to go out. And if businesses are open, they're open. You feel for the workers in a lot of cases who I, know are well, masked I, up and yeah. they're inside with you know, 50 people. Yeah, I'm totally uh, 
be only for the for the workers. This has been a tragically difficult year, even for people who didn't actually lose somebody. Uh, the fact that people have lost income and we have eight to ten million people thrust into poverty this year, it is incredibly difficult. And I think we ought to do everything possible to get people back to work and schools open, et cetera. But this is always a balance, you know. And one thing is that the American Rescue Plan uh, that was just passed, that's going to be really helping people economically. And I'm way, way sympathetic to all those things, too. But, you know, this is this is really crunch time where we have to make, you know, grown-up decisions about uh, how much risk we'll take and, you know, what will be the consequences. So don't you think, though, that, that perhaps the— uh I don't know, maybe the dirty little secret of America right about now is that uh, many people have sort of made the decision, whether consciously or not, that they are willing to, uh, in order to, uh, you know, put a spark under economic activity, accept a certain level of disease and death. Well, here's the thing about this. Um, I wrote a piece that's uh, an op-ed in the, in the Hill a couple of days ago, but if an individual, let's say you decide you want to go uh, freestyle uh, rock climbing, no sheer cliffs, no ropes, and, you know, that's your risk. You're taking that risk. You want to do that. I wish you luck. And if you fall off that cliff, you'll have, you know, nine or ten people grieving for you. If you decide to take a risk which has to do with, let's say, drinking and driving and crashing and, you know, hurting other or killing other people, that's not okay. And if you're a government official and you decide to let things, quote-unquote, open or make believe we're normalized, you're taking a risk that involves a lot of innocent people who have not made that choice to go to a, uh, uh, you know, to, to go on spring break. Because they're going to be bringing this back to their communities. They're going to be exposing other people. So you have to ask yourself, are you, is it permissible in a mature society to take your risk and impose it on other people. That's where I have difficulty. What, what do you guys think about that point? Well, I, I, no, I, I hear what you're saying. And, and look, I mean, that's always been the argument, I think, from the day one with the pandemic, when people said, we don't want to wear masks. It's our right, uh, you know, to not wear masks. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it's their right, provided that you're not spreading it to some other poor person who, who has a right for not who has to a be, right not to get it get it from uh, you. yeah and and that has been this raging debate uh, has it not yeah. since the beginning of of course the pandemic yeah. and what i what i think is happening now is as we see states like texas and mississippi opening up florida has always kind of been opened up california is opening yeah. up kids are going to spring break i think what you're seeing is the winning side for better or worse, the winning side of the argument that says whatever is good for us is what's good. Yeah. Well, let's, you know, we'll take the, the uh, Duke University experience I've just mentioned to you. So, so we got 180 positive cases. They're going to go back to their, wherever their campuses, they're going to go home, whatever they're going to do. So what happens to the kids that said, we're not going to a, a frat party in an environment like this. We don't want to get sick or risk getting sick or take it back to grandma. Uh, but they had no choice because these other people made a decision to do something very risky, not just for themselves, but risky in terms of those more innocent people who want to be compliant. And that's where it gets really, uh, you know, very, very difficult. But I, at the end of the day, my conclusion is, no, it's not okay. And uh, I don't know. I guess other people have another, another opinion. But you have, to, you have to twist yourself into a pretzel to justify uh, you giving someone else 
a risk that they did not want to take. Dr. Erwin Redlener, director of the Pandemic Resource and Response Initiative at Columbia University Medical Center. Lots of people could skip out on the vaccine once it's available. There's research that shows as many as 16% of adults might not get it because of something called trypanophobia. Have you heard of it? I have. I do Uh not like needles. It is extreme fear of medical procedures involving needles. Dr. Jenny Tate's clinical psychologist practicing in Beverly Hills, a doctor. What do we do? This is such a great question because... You know, so many of our fears are irrational, but this phobia is actually people do. It's not in their head. People can go and call me to get, like you've been describing, their blood drawn or um, a vaccine and actually pass out, even though they didn't feel like that was a concern of theirs going in. There is a genetic component to blood injury injection phobia, and some people are just more predisposed to have this. But that being said, there are certain techniques that can help you overcome this. Ah, okay. So, one so, so, people... so what, I was going to say, what what could Mike do to overcome this and send the bill to him? By <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, Mike, one thing you can do is a kind of counterintuitive, but it's called applied tension. We all think when we're going to face something stressful, we should try to relax, but actually learning to tense because that prevents your blood pressure from dropping. Um, so if you practice like five times a week, let's say before you're going to go get your COVID vaccine, uh, you know, you tense your muscles, hold that for like 10 seconds, then release, relax for 20 seconds, uh, practice this like five times a day for five days. So everyone, all the listeners can try this at home, you know, tensing your, your body. So tensing your leg muscles, your thigh muscles, your belly muscles, you know, tensing everything, your fists, your, you know, your hands. And then once you, when you go in to get your uh, vaccine, which is such a privilege, you know, to tense your muscles because that uh, prevents the fainting response. I also shouldn't look. Does that make sense? (laughs) It does make (laughs) sense, right? Yeah, and I shouldn't look, right? That's the other thing. You could, I mean, you could, it's tricky because sometimes when you face your fears, you actually realize they're just fears, but you can look away and focus on tensing. Um, But, you know, I think it's really important for people out there to remember that Fainting is actually harmless. There's nothing bad that will happen to you if you faint, especially if you're sitting in a chair, you're not going to faint. Um, but getting COVID could be life-threatening. So this is a matter of kind of weighing the pros and cons of both of your options. So are these are these fears, I'm trying to psychoanalyze Mike here, are, are these based on like deep-seated fears from like his childhood? It's my low blood pressure. Is that what it is? Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, no, this is actually, this is one, one uh, thing that there's not really much to psychoanalyze. This is a, just a genetic... Um, vasovagal response that some people just have. And that being said, people that are born with this can still go on to do things like go to medical school or, you know, receive treatments for complicated diseases. This doesn't, this is very treatable. But you, yeah, this is, isn't because he had a bad experience yeah. getting his blood so, drawn. <laughs> yeah. It's not that. It's, it's the other thing. Okay. All right, uh, right, you right. had your vaccine. You've had both of them. Yes. Because you were in the trial. Because I was in the trial. Right. And it's short. You tell yes, me. It's yes. not like the flu shot or some of the others where I feel like they leave it in there for a minute. And no, then, no, it's really fast. Then I start to go, why, can you take it out of my arm, please? No. But that one's just like a prick, the COVID shot. Yeah, so yeah, that's you, good news, uh, doctor, yeah, you, for everybody who has to, to go line up. Yeah, it's pretty quick. Yeah, even if for some reason, yeah, exactly. That's great news. But I want everyone out there to realize that the only way to overcome fears is to face them. And uh, being willing to be comfortable is a really huge thing in terms of living your best life because so many things like this vaccine could open up a lot of opportunities. But if we let uh, fears of short-term discomforts get in the way, we'll really hold ourselves back long-term. 
Dr. Jenny Tate's clinical psychologist practicing in Beverly Hills. Go get your shots. So what she was talking about, did that, that made sense to you about tensing up and... Mm-hmm. So, so what do you do again? You just kind of squeeze your legs, Yeah. you know, yeah, keep the core. Keep, okay. That's what you do, and you don't think. Even though smoking can have a big impact on the risk of developing a serious case of COVID-19, the pandemic is apparently making it harder for people to quit. A report from the North American Quitline Consortium found a steep drop in calls during 2020 to the portal that connects callers to local quitlines. It also found cigarette sales increased in 2020 after years of steady decline. The CEO of the group says the pandemic has created stress and anxiety, which has made it tough for people to think about quitting. Find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Thank you.